to Objection to the Rule, your Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon <laughs> news hour. That was weird. On radio that is weird. Uh, it was weird. Uh, we're recording yeah. this episode on Saturday, September 17th, 2022, and it will begin airing on Sunday, September 18th, 2022. Uh, my name is Reese Robinson. I'm on air today with my co-host, Emily Scott. How's it going, lady? It is going all right. I am tired, but it, the fall is slowly seeping in, and I love when the temperatures get colder, so that feels pretty good. How are you doing? Nice. Yeah. I am doing okay, obviously affected by this mercury retrograde. Yeah. <laughs> Talking crazy, but I am <laughs> happy to report that today is my stepfather's birthday, so happy birthday, Sir Herbert Jackson Jr., I love you so much. Um, Yeah, happy to see you making it to another year. All right, so we're going to go ahead and give you the docket for today. Our local news story is about Columbia University's fall and the college ranking system and some of the flaws that exist within the system as well. Our national news story is about the looming U.S. railroad strike. For world news, we'll be talking about where the new King Charles III money's coming from. And finally, our good news story is about a high school football team that helped to restore a bridge in Indiana after the storms. So we'll go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news story. Emily, you're up. All righty. So for the local news story this week, I actually picked a story that's sort of a combo local and national news um, story. It's about, well, it comes from a, a September 12th New York Times article by Anemona Hartikolis, uh, titled U.S. News Dropped Columbia's Ranking, But Its Own Methods Are Now Questioned. After doubt about its data, the university dropped to number 18 from number two. But now many are asking, can the rating system be that easily manipulated? Uh, the article explains, quote, U.S. News and World Report likes to say that it is performing a consumer service when it puts out its annual college rankings. But on Monday, those rankings were again called into question after the publication demoted Columbia University to number 18 from number two in its newest annual list after a months-long controversy over whether the school had fudged its numbers. The drop suggests that the highly influential rankings, which have been criticized for having an outsized influence on parents and college admissions, can be easily manipulated since they rely heavily on data submitting, submitted by the universities that directly benefit from them. Columbia's number two status was not questioned until one of its own math professors, Michael Thaddeus, in a February blog post, accused the school of submitting statistics that were inaccurate, dubious, or highly misleading. Last week, the university said in a statement that it had miscalculated some data. Columbia's public humili- humiliation raises questions for many parents and educational policymakers. Can the quality of a college be ranked by a single number, the way critics rate movies with stars? And should students choose where to go to college based on what has become a proxy for prestige? Dr. Thaddeus said he would not draw conclusions about the quality of a Columbia education from the rankings, whether the number two or the number 18 spot. The broader lesson everyone should keep in mind is that U.S. News has shown its operations are so shoddy that both of them are meaningless, Dr. Thaddeus said. If any institution can decline from number two to number 18 in a single year, it just discredits the whole ranking operation. 
U.S. News, which has been rating colleges since 1983, said that given the cost and importance of education, it is ever more important that parents and students have some kind of guide to quality schools. For most of these students and their families, other than buying a home, attending college is the most consequential investment they will ever make, Eric Gertler, the chief, uh, chief executive of U.S. News, said in a statement. Some experts say that, an, uh, that though the numerical ranking system provides the satisfaction of a snap judgment, it exaggerates the differences among schools and blurs more nuanced considerations, like whether a college is strong in certain fields or has good support systems and extracurricular activities. And they say the rankings encourage students to apply to a similar list of schools, regardless of their own personal interests. I don't think there's any reason that a student going to a school that's ranked six, that's ranked 60 versus one uh, versus one ranked 50 is going to have a meaningful risk for their lives, said Mushtag Gunja, a former official in the Obama administration's education department and a senior vice president at the American Council on Education, which represents universities. But students often apply to schools that they think will give them a leg up in life, enhancing their prospects for upward mobility, or at least for a satisfying career, solid earnings, and the sense of accomplishment that comes with being educated. The fixation with status that keeps the college rankings orga- college rankings organizations, not just U.S. News, but others like the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and Washington Monthly in business may be overblown, but it is not irrational, said Colin Diver, former president of Reed College, a rare school that does not participate in the rankings, and former dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School, which does. It's based on a not irrational premise that you're more likely not only to get jobs, but you're more likely to get noticed. You're more likely to have good connections, he said. You'll have a pedigree, and in America, a little of that is conferred by family, but most of it is conferred by education. As for the schools themselves, he said, they have a love-hate relationship with U.S. News. Publicly, they may be reluctant to say we love this ranking system, anti-intellectual as it is, but in fact, when your ranking goes up, you tend to brag about it. Mr. Diver argued that schools were far too complex to be properly reduced to a single number, even taking into account the 17 criteria and sub-criteria used by U.S. News, including reputation, 20%, student selectivity, 7%, of which SAT and ACT scores are weighted at uh, 5%, and debt held by graduates, 5%. Uh, quote, Columbia's downfall began in February when Dr. Thaddeus questioned the accuracy of the university's data, saying he had compared it to publicly available sources and found discrepancies. After originally defending its data, Columbia announced in June that it was withdrawing from the, li- from the next set of rankings because of the questions raised by Dr. Thaddeus. U.S. News in turn announced that it was withdrawing Columbia from the rankings. But on Monday, U.S. News announced the 2022-23 rankings with Columbia restored to the list at number 18. The statement said that Columbia's new rank was calculated with data from the U.S. Education Department's National Center for Education Statistics, the peer assessment survey conducted by U.S. News, and the government's college scorecard. Where there was no third-party data, U.S. News said, it aligned competitive set values. Uh, Robert Morse chief data strategist for U.S. News, said the formulas for calculating assigned values generally assigned a value below the average score for that indicator. Dr. Thaddeus said the values appeared to be just a slightly more decorous way of saying that they pulled these numbers out of the air. 
In the new rankings, Princeton ranks first, MIT is second, and Harvard, Yale, and Stanford are tied for third. Last year, Columbia was second to Princeton and tied with Harvard and MIT. U.S. News regularly announces that it, was, that it has found discrepancies in data submitted by universities. The consequences of misreporting usually, have, uh, usually involve being pulled from the list, but on occasion they have been harsher. Uh, quote, but Columbia, an Ivy League institution, is probably the most prestigious university in recent memory to be accused of providing incorrect data. On Friday, just before the new rankings were released, Columbia admitted that it had submitted either outdated or incorrect data in two of the metrics that go into the rankings, class size and the number of faculty with the highest degrees in their field. Columbia said the mistakes were a result, at least in part, of the complexity of the reporting requirements. We deeply regret the deficiencies in our prior reporting and are committed to doing better, Columbia's provost, Mary Boyce, said in a statement. In last year's rankings, Columbia claimed that about 83% of its classes had fewer than 20 students. On Friday, Columbia said that 57% of graduate, undergraduate classes had enrollments of fewer than 20 students in fall 2021. Uh, and last year, Columbia said that 100% of its full-time faculty had terminal degrees, the highest in their field. On Friday, Columbia revised that to about 95%. So that is where I'm going to leave that story for now. Um, I sort of get a bit of shade and Freude, I think, about the whole thing where it's like, every, you know, I think the obsession with college, with university rankings and applications in the United States is unhealthy at the very least and pretty out of control. And, you know, people are in debt for decades, you know, if not years and years. Um over stuff like this, right? And I think to a certain degree, the ranking system allows universities to like charge these astronomical fees, you know, like, oh, we're number five in the country. So of course it could be $40,000 a year, you know? I think stuff like that's pretty toxic. So I think um, this sort of expose of why it's all sort of maybe like, you know, those rankings are sort of irrelevant. I, um, I think it's a really important conversation <laughs> that needs to be had. What do you think? I think that this whole system is was already screwed, but is even more screwed after the pandemic. Higher ed as an institution has not restored to what it sort of once was. And I say that lightly because, you know, I think it's an industry that hasn't really been... Um, sort of like explore deeply over the years, like in regard to the ranking system, uh, how to structure the pay, how college admission prices are even galvaged every year. You know, they generally go up yearly. This whole like structure and system of higher education has not, in my opinion, ever really been thoroughly looked through and combed through to justify some of the extreme cost and how these colleges get these rankings. Um, you know, I've always worked in higher ed, so this is my industry. Um, mm. And I've just noticed that since the pandemic, like nothing is really restored to what once was. And even within once what what once was, there were still issues, you know, like administratively that really left us all in abyss. Like, how did we end up in debt and what are we paying for? You know, mm. you can't really say that your tuition is paying somebody's salary either. So um, mm. In regards to the system being like blown up <laughs> for uh, mm. learning how this ranking system works, I think it's a great thing. Um, I also think that this is an industry that needs 
a lot more just um, focus um, because so many of us have been affected by it. And it's, it's literally a driver of the good and bad in American economy, right? People go to college, they're able to get higher level positions, but now since the pandemic and college being online, what does that even mean anymore? I feel like to us, for us to assume that getting a college degree is the way to make it in society is, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, that's, that's the way it was, right? But mm-hmm. is it like that now? What does that even mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a combination. Like I think that that pressure to have a degree, I think is real. I, th- I mean, I, um, I think that, you know, compared to the seventies, for example, I think it was a lot from what I understand because I wasn't around then, like, you know, going to university wasn't a requirement to get like a decent job, you know? Right. But I like a decently paying job. But I think that in today, I think it's harder and harder to get anything above minimum wage without an undergraduate degree in from the U S. Um, yeah. And, And I think that the, cost of education it's it's out of control <laughs> it's absolutely You're out right. of control it's 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 bananas I remember my grandpa talking about like like you could pay I mean it's just you know it's not just like inflation like you uh you know or like um my great our my grandparents generation they could pay their own way through college right they could hold like a part-time job yeah. and that would cover the cost of classes and bing bang boom there you go and that's like so laughable these days. You know, you can't do it without taking out a loan or without scholarships or without just an astronomical amount of um, family wealth. Um, exactly. And it shouldn't be that way, you know? No, no, I totally yeah. agree. And I'm not trying to discredit, you know, educators or, you know, what it is that you actually learn in college, because I think a lot of times that gets thrown out the window, right? You have a major and focus on being able to learn something about that industry. But what you really learn is accountability and responsibility and, you know, how to work hard and grit and determination and focus. You know, you learn all these other things that you have to accomplish in order to make it to the end. So I just feel like, you know, this industry as a whole just really needs an opportunity to just be reevaluated and and thought about what is the value that we are presenting for people who will pay their entire lives for this degree. And how does that help us as a, mm-hmm. you know, as a country to have to invest in something like this? I feel every year, no matter what level of degree you get, the higher you go up, it's like, oh, now you're one of them. Well, now you have all this debt as well. So you kind of, mm-hmm. you know, you damned if you do, if you damned if you don't. And mm-hmm. it sucks because people feel like that is um, a determining factor of somebody's ability to do well in life. And Mm-mm. sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. You know, I know many mm-hmm. people who didn't finish college and they went on to have successful careers. Mm-hmm. So, you yeah. know, um, I just hope that this ranking system, it, it drives us into a deeper sort of exploratory notion of how higher institution as a higher ed as an institution is set up and helps more people to acquire the knowledge they want without, you know, going crazy out of debt because of some name or some notoriety a school has been mm-hmm. given for God knows what reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think it's also an interesting conversation to be had in relation and how it relates to um, the debt debt forgiveness that just uh, got mm-hmm. passed or whatever the word is by the federal government, because that is, you know, great yeah. and really important because again, people shouldn't be in debt for the rest of their lives because uh, they want to get a good education, but um, 
but it doesn't like fix the problem that, you know, it doesn't like the next generation still has those bills. You know what I mean? Like, I think the root of the issue is why it is so much, you know, and I don't, I don't hear any enough conversation. I think about that and really, you know, it's all, it's debt for debt forgiveness is only, you know, putting a bandaid on the issue because there's still the cost and people are still going to have to take out loans and moving forward, you know? And like, why does it cost so much to go to classes? Like, exactly. Let's get down to the bottom line here. Yeah. (laughs) Great story, Emily. Um, And definitely a much needed a conversation. What do you guys think? Definitely uh, have this conversation with other people. Great time to really discuss what this means for all of us, whether you're going to school or graduated, working one, you want to. uh, This is an issue that um, I think connects all of us. All right, we'll go ahead and hop into our first music break today. This track is called Technicolor and is by a band called The Comet Is Coming. We'll be right back. Oh, my God. 
If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. All right, for our national news story today, uh, this article is from inthetimes.com, and the author of the article is Jeff Sherruckle. Um, The title is, It's Not Over. While Biden toots, real deal workers may have yet to vote, and many remain skeptical, a national rail strike could be on the table if the rank and file workers reject a tentative agreement announced by the White House this week. President Joe Biden took a victory lap on Thursday after his administration helped broker a deal to start to stave off what would have been the first national freight railroad strike in 30 years. But the potential crisis is not over until rank and file rail workers vote on whether to approve the agreement, which could take weeks. Until railroad, railroad, I can't say that word today, until railroad workers in the coming days can digest this and have their questions answered, there's no consensus able to build on whether this deal is good, bad, or ugly, said Ron Kimilov, a Nevada-based engineer and member of the Teamsters, Affiliated Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen. The tentative agreement reached early Thursday covers over 60,000 workers with the Blet and the Sheet Metal Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers Transportation Division, two of the 12 rail unions that have been in contract negotiations with the major freight rail carriers for nearly three years. While the other unions had already reached tentative deals, the Blet and Smart TD were the last to hold out. Blet President Dennis Pierce who was directly part of the high strikes negotiation, told in these times that in accordance with the union's internal processes, the tentative agreement will first be reviewed by the union's general chairman, who will finalize the document before it is sent out to the membership for a ratification vote via mail. This is probably going to take three to four weeks to get full details into members' hands. At the center of the labor dispute is draconian attendance policies, which don't allow workers to take sick leave and force them to be on call 24-7. In recent decades, major Class 1 rail carriers like BNSF, Union Pacific, Norfolk Southern, and CSX have implemented precision-scheduled railroading, a kind of lean production, just-in-time model that design that designed that is designed to maximize, maximize shareholder profits by slashing expenses. Because of PSR cost cutting, over the past six years, the major Class 1 railroads have slashed their collective workforce by 29%, around 45,000 workers, leaving the industry woefully understaffed and putting extra strain on workers already accustomed to long, irregular hours. While PSR has harmed workers, shippers, and consumers, it has led to the rail carrier recording record profits with shareholders ranking in $183 billion in buybacks and dividends since 2020. 
Since 2020, two coalitions of 12 unions, dubbed the United Rail Unions, have been in negotiations with the major, major railroad companies represented by the National Carriers Conference Committee. Alongside sick leave and holidays, other key issues at the negotiating table have included wages increasing, health care and staffing, with the rail carriers demanding that freight train crews be reduced from two workers to just one. In an early effort to avert a strike in July, Biden appointed a presidential emergency board known as PEB, consisting of three major labor law experts with the purpose of examining the dispute and proposing a fair settlement. After a month of long investigations, the PEB issued a report on August 16th, while recommending a headline-grabbing 24% compounded wage increase by 2024, the emergency board called on the unions to withdraw their demands for paid sick leave and added holidays, while also refusing to make recommendations on train crew size. The next day, the rail carriers declared they were prepared to meet with the rail unions and reach agreements based on the PEB report without delay, but some rank-and-file railroad workers took to social media to express their disgust at the emergency board's recommendations, angry that they could not resolve central issues around leave and attendance. In a survey, over 3,000 rail workers from multiple unions conducted in late August by Railroad Workers United, an inter- Union Cross Craft Solidarity Caucus of Rank Filing Railroaders, a whopping 93% of respondents said they would reject the vote. Um, they would reject to, sorry, they would vote to reject the PEB recommendations if they were alter, offered a tentative contract agreement. In the weeks after the PEB report, most of the unions reached tentative agreements with railroads based on emergency board's recommendations. So far, two unions have ratified their agreements. But members of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers reject their tentative deal, delaying the possible strike on partic by the particular union to September 29th. Entering this week with a potential strike on the horizon for September 16th, two of the largest rail unions did not have tenanted agreements. In an apparent attempt to ratchet up the pressure, the rail carriers announced embargoes on fertilizer, ammonia, and other chemical products crucial to agriculture, while Amtrak began canceling long-distance passenger services. So that's kind of a rundown of the story. I wanted to add just this little piece um, from the NPR interview um, or report titled How an Attendance Policy Brought the U.S. to Brink of a Nationwide Rail Strike. This article is by Andrea Hashu, and I believe it just kind of represents the railroaders sort of um, position on this just a little bit more and how it will affect the economy. Because I think one thing to consider that we don't realize, you know, the rail industry it's like 40% of the nation's like travel of goods and services. So when you don't see things on the shelves in stores, when there's low stock, these are the type of things that are affected by the rail service. Um, and so the reason that the recent, most recent reason that some of this stuff has come to light is because during the pandemic, so many people bought so many more things. And so the industry as a whole, the delivery industry changed and these sort of um, this workforce sort of explanation that the, the railroads have provided for people have just become a little overwhelming to the workers and they're not really budging on the work conditions. 
So the article reads, like so many essential workers in the pandemic, the engineers and conductors who drive the nation's freight trains have had it. They're tired of unpredictable and flexible work schedules. They're tired of being penalized for taking days off when they're sick and tended to family emergencies and they want a better quality of life. Just give me one second, Jasmine, sorry. So in the middle of the pandemic, railroads introduced a policy that the workers hate. Point-based attendance policies are not new. Employers, including Amazon and Walmart, use them as a way to reduce unexpected absences from work, but such policies are fairly new to railroads. BNSF Railroad introduced a version called HiViz in February 2022, saying it would improve consistency for both crews and customers. The unions say it only has made things worse. Even before the system was introduced, railroad conductors and engineers were essentially on call most of the time, outside of paid vacation and personal days leaves and personal leave days. When they got called into work, they generally had 90 minutes or two hours to report. So under this HIVIS, which is the new system, um, workers are docked points from starting from a starting balance of 30. I'm sorry, Emily, I'm trying to like scan the article. I just want to say what's really happening. So let me go back just a little bit. And I'm sorry, Jasmine. Even before the system was introduced, railroad conductors and engineers were essentially on call, on call most of the time, outside of paid vacation and personal leave days. When they got called into work, they generally have either 90 minutes or two hours to report. Under high viz they are unavailable if they are unavailable to report to work. In that window, they're docked from points starting at a balance of 30. Deductions range from 2 to 25 points, depending on the day. The more valuable the day, the higher the deduction. That means Fridays, Saturdays, holidays, and so-called high-impact days, including Mother's Day or Super Bowl or any other holiday, re results to larger deductions. Where their point balance falls to zero, they face a 10-day suspension. After that, their points are reset to only 15. If their balance falls to zero again, it's a 20-day suspension, and the third time the worker faces termination. So this is a new policy that was introduced because of the need for more workers, um, obviously, during the pandemic. So that's kind of where we are. As of yesterday, there hasn't really been a full decision. Uh, the tentative contracts are still on um, on the shelf. There's nothing new came out this morning, but I think this is an important um issue that's impacting our society. And while we may not feel it right today, in about a week or two, when things are hard to get, we will see. So obviously, this is a very important thing to talk about. Um, our country's rail system is so important to the everyday lives of Americans. What do you think, Emily? Yeah, I, um, it was just interesting, because I feel like out of nowhere, I saw a New York Times alert being like, oh, Amtrak might shut down all long distance um, travel from Friday. And it, I hadn't heard any of like the issues building up to that. And it does just make you think like how many things there are, like how many infrastructure things are so vital and that we take for granted and that like all the things that go into those things functioning um, as regularly and as frequently as they do, even if it's not perfect and just like how much goes into that, you know? And then also, like the conditions you were talking about were crazy. They have to be on call all the time, like constantly. Yeah. And it's that's like this is insane. It's, it's awful. Like, how do you even plan your life if that's. You can't. Exactly. Yeah. 
So if you happen to do have a sick day and you have to call out, you get points deducted. It it sounds like the system set up to basically fire you. Yeah, no, that's crazy. And it's, I know that um, when I was in food industry in New York, at least that's illegal to have people on call for, or like, what is it? It's like, you have to get, I'm trying to remember what the rule was, but they, I had one job where they used to, like you used to be on call on a certain day, but I found out later that that like isn't legal because for you to set aside any time in that industry, at least for food service, like you need to be paid unless they, and they need to give you at least two hours notice if it's going to get canceled or something like that. I don't remember the exact rules, but it's like you yeah. being on call is labor. Like, you know what I mean? Like exactly. that. Yeah. That's crazy. And, and and then you get penalized when you have when you can't make it and you're on call. That's the part that's like, well, mm-hmm. you told me 90 minutes ago, right? I needed to come yeah. to work. So regardless of what I'm doing, yeah. you're gonna penalize me because I can't make it. Like, yeah. it, it's 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 crazy. Yeah, and it's also like yeah. people often commute that far, like to get to work, right? So it's like, how can I be ready at the drop of a hat? And also, you know, that's not healthy. Like, you, I don't want someone. Um, working on something as like as potentially dangerous as a train line if they didn't get enough sleep the night before because they didn't know if they they were going to work the next day I think that's a huge issue yeah yeah I mean these these policies are abusive and they're punitive and Mm -hmm. it's really sad that people have to go through something like this in such an important industry you know what they do fuels other parts of society in so many ways and i think one of the things the pandemic did show us you know it it defined an essential worker people don't realize that when you're sleeping those goods and services is being brought to you by america's rail system Mm -hmm. that's operating in the middle of the night you know like um it's such a huge industry that's you know a national uh, provider of things to us. And I don't really think people understand how important they are to the fabric mm-hmm. of our everyday lives. So I really hope that, you know, something can happen that is in favor of these workers, that the industry as a whole just has a shift in the way we respect these people. Because the reality is, like you said, nobody wants someone who didn't have enough rest or no time off to be mm-hmm. uh, driving them, let alone conducting uh, something of such importance um, to our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, y'all. I think it's time for a break. That was a great story, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Please follow up and definitely, um, you know, think about this as as you're speaking to people and what this will mean um, in your neighborhoods. If you're already kind of noticing a shortage on things, just imagine what's going to happen if this actually goes through. All right. So our next music break is a song by Butcher Brown, and it's called Laud Y. L-A-W-D, Laud. <laughs> we'll be right back. Please, please, Lord, why? Tell me, Lord, please, tell me, please, Lord, why? Tell me, Lord. 
it on greatness in the booth. We on 11 like the needle tapping corners in the coop. I thank the Lord tonight, cause I might. Just snap under pressure and act a fool like they gave me lights. Just don't sit inside my bank account. But I can turn the fucking body out. Homies is thirsty, cut the girls running in and out. When in doubt, hold your wall. Niggas in the danger zone. Can I be no copy club? Nigga, you better go and get your own. Tell me, Lord, please, put the balls on my knees in the streets. In the rain with the rain for a taste of the unheavenly grace. Slip the fell up on my face to a sunken dark place. Maturation necessary, triumphant, spinning Because we curse no more, we hurt no more. Finna go down to the corner store. I'm back when we do one more. I'm not back, I let you know. Yeah. Tell me, Lord, please, tell me, please, Lord, why? Tell me, Lord, please, tell me, please, Lord, why? I'm just a man, I cannot see the plan. Up on my feet, I stand and march forward through the mud. Thinking about what this shit could be if I could go back to hide in the dope stack. Knew before I got that, dark days came along. But I brought it right back. Grind for the paper stack. Look at that, right there. It was underneath my head. Had to lose it just to see all the shit that I could be. Tell me, Lord, please, tell me, please, Lord, why? Tell me, Lord, please, tell me, please, Lord, why? Tell me, Lord, please, tell me, please, Lord, why? Tell me, Lord, please, tell me, please, Lord, why? Tell me, Lord, please, tell me, please, Lord, why? Tell me, Lord, please, tell me, please, Lord, why? Tell me, Lord, please, tell me, please, Lord, why? Tell me, Lord, please. Tell me, Lord, please. Tell me, Lord, please. Tell me, Lord, please. You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule of Radio Free Brooklyn. Next up, we have Emily with our world news update. All righty. So this story comes from a September 13th New York Times article by Jane Bradley and Ewan Ward titled King Charles inherits untold riches and passes off his own empire. As Prince Charles used tax breaks, offshore accounts, and canny real estate investments to turn a sleepy estate into a billion-dollar business. The article explains, quote, King Charles III built his own empire long before he inherited his mother's. Charles, who formally, who formally acceded to the British throne on Saturday, spent half a century turning his royal estate into a billion-dollar portfolio and one of the most lucrative moneymakers in the royal biz- family business. Um, And also, quick sidebar, this is from September 13th, so that would have been the Saturday before 
September 17th, though the week before. Anyway, um, quote, while his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, largely delegated responsibility for her portfolio, Charles was far more deeply involved in developing the private estate known as the Duchy of Cornwall. Over the past decade, he has assembled a large team of professional managers who increased his portfolio's value and profits by about 50%. Today, the Duchy of Cornwall owns the landmark cricket ground known as the Oval, lush farmland in the south of England, seaside vacation rentals, office space in London, and a suburban supermarket depot. A duchy is a territory traditionally governed by a duke or duchess. The 130,000-acre real estate portfolio portfolio is nearly the size of Chicago and generates millions of dollars a year in rental income. The conglomerate's holdings are valued at roughly $1.4 billion compared with around uh, $949 million in the late Queen's private portfolio. These two estates represent a small fraction of the royal family's estimated $28 billion fortune. On top of that, the family has personal wealth that remains a closely guarded secret. As king, Charles will take over his mother's portfolio and inherit a share of this untold personal fortune. While British citizens normally pay around 40% inheritance tax, King Charles gets this tax free. And he will pass control of his duchy to his elder son, William, to develop further without having to pay corporate taxes. The growth in the royal family's coffers and King Charles's personal wealth over the past decade come at a time when Britain faced came at a time when Britain faced deep austerity budget cuts. Poverty levels soared and the use of food banks almost doubled. His lifestyle of palaces and polo has long fueled accusations that he is out of touch with ordinary people. And he has at times been the unwitting symbol of that discontent, such as when his limo was mobbed by students protesting rising tuition in 2010 or when he perched atop a golden throne in his royal finery this year to pledge help for struggling families. Today, he ascends to the throne as the, con- as the country buckles under a cost-of-living crisis that is expected to see poverty get even worse. A more divisive figure than his mother, Charles is likely to give fresh energy to those questioning the relevance of a royal family at a time of public hardship. Uh, Quote, the Duchy of Cornwall was established in the 14th century as a way to generate income for the heir to the throne and has essentially funded Charles's private and official expenses. One example of his financial might, the $28 million profit he made from it last year dwarfed his official salary as prince, just over $1.1 million. Piecing together the royal family's assets is complicated, but the fortune falls generally into four groups. One, quote, first and and most prominent is the crown estate, which oversees the assets of the monarchy through a board of directors. Charles as king will serve as its chairman, but he does not have final say over how the business is managed. The estate, which official accounts value at more than $19 billion, includes shopping malls, busy streets in London's West End, and a growing number of wind farms. The royals are entitled to take only rental income from their official estates and may not profit from any sales as they do not personally own the assets. The estate's profits, valued at about $363 million this year, are turned over to the Treasury, which in return gives the royal household a payment called a sovereign grant based on those profits, which must be topped up by the government if it is lower than the previous year. In 2017, the government increased the family's payment to 25% of the profits to cover the cost of renovating Buckingham Palace. Uh, Quote, 
uh, the next major pot of money is the Duchy of Lancaster. This $949 million portfolio is owned by whomever sits on the throne. But third, the value of that trust is dwarfed by the Duchy of Cornwall, which is the third uh, home of royal money, which Charles has long presided over as prince. Generating tens of millions of dollars a year, the Duchy has funded his private and official spending and has bankrolled William, the heir to the throne, and Kate, William's wife. It has done so without paying corporate taxes like most businesses in Britain are obliged to and without publishing details about where the estate invests its money. Quote, in 2017, leaked financial documents known as the Paradise Papers revealed that Charles's duchy estate had invested millions in offshore companies, including a Bermuda-registered business run by one of his best friends. And quote, the final pool of money and the most secretive is the family's private fortune. According to the Rich List, the annual catalog of Brit- British, wealth- British wealth published in the Sunday Times, the Queen had a net worth of about $430 million. That includes her personal assets, such as Balmoral Castle and San- Sandringham Estate, which she inherited from her father. Much of her personal wealth has been kept private. Quote, Charles has also courted controversy about his with his outspoken views and campaigning. He's lobbied senior government ministers, including Tony Blair, through dozens of letters on issues from the Iraq War to alternative therapies. Though English law does not require it, royal protocol, royal protocol calls for political neutrality. In his inaugural address on Saturday, the king indicated that he planned to step back from his outside endeavors. It will no longer be possible for me to give so much of my time and energies to the charities and issues for which I care so deeply, he said. Ms. Clancy, the author, said the new king, in theory, uh, would be expected to drop his lobbying and business ventures entirely. Whether that will pan out is a different question, she said. We, I know we mentioned at last week's show that the queen had passed away and now there was a new king in town. And we didn't really go too much into it. And I think that this story really highlights a lot of the apprehension, I think, that Um, at least among the British people I sort of know of King Charles, you know, Queen Elizabeth, whatever you think of, you know, um, colonial empires in general or monarchies in general. She was, she was decently likable as far as they all go, you know, like not super controversial, pretty likable as far as that all goes. And the now King Charles the third just has had a much more, I think, um, unlikable history and controversial history, everything with princess die and all of the scandal around that. Um, he, do, he does do some good charitable stuff from what I hear, but there's also like some controversies about him and who he accepts money from for those charities. Um, and I just thought this article was a really interesting peek into the wealth of the monarchy in the 21st century and where that comes from for a family that's essentially figureheads at this point. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I didn't realize. I mean, I thought that his pockets was deep. Don't get me wrong. I mean, yeah, pretty much set up the world the way it is <laughs> or remnants of the people who did. But in the same context, like it is going to be quite interesting to see what kind of turns the world takes because of this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't wealth is something that I think is figurative, right? But not to these people like it's. <laughs> It's a whole nother it's a whole nother game over here. So it'd be interesting to see how um everything changes for Europe and the world as a whole, because they have such a huge impact on how things are done. Um, definitely good insight. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I think it's also interesting from a cultural point of view that he's he's being crowned like at such an old age, like in his 70s. It's like, you know what I mean? It's like such a wild thing. I feel like it's they're usually I don't know. What is he, the president of the United States? Huh? Just kidding. Yeah, they are usually much younger. I know. I mean, Queen Elizabeth became queen while she was in her 20s, I'm pretty sure. Um, And I mean, I think a long time. I think it's pretty rare for a monarch to to reign for as many years as she did. Um, So that's Wiggy, too. And yeah, I don't I mean, you know, yeah. Like everything with like the palaces and the up, like, you know, that much money being going in to take care of that is interesting because I kind of get it from a public value point of view. Like, you know, it's a symbol of the country, but it's also like it's so inaccessible in there. It's not like it's I mean, maybe you can go on tours at Buckingham Palace, but I don't think so. I don't know. I haven't tried. But um, maybe I don't know. But it's also (laughs) it's just (laughs) I don't know what I'm talking about with that in particular. But um, you know, but then the privately owned properties that are generating so much money. Yeah. It's just it's crazy. Chicago, that's wild. It's crazy. And it's yeah. like I get yeah, I get the idea that like of course the royal family has money, but it's like why does the royal, you know, like they should be oh, getting a lot towns. more of their money away. Yeah. yeah. Right. Wait, huh? Yeah, some, crazy. Well, all the things that are going on within their country and the countries that they're affiliated with, you would think. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, maybe it'll come up under examination now. Yeah, yeah. All righty. Well, we do have one more story for you all. This is a good news story for this week um, from a website called theweek.com. Um, the story title, High School Football Team Helps Rebuild Indiana Bridge Destroyed by Storm. And it reads, without the help of a football team, several parents and a few Cub Scouts, Todd Todd Hagen would still be stuck at home, unable to leave due to a destroyed wooden bridge. Hagen lives in Switzerland County, Indiana, and on September 3rd, flash flooding caused by heavy rains completely demolished the bridge, which is the only connection between his house and the main road. Everybody knows everybody around here, Hagen told the Washington Post. And when his grandson's football coach, Ryan Jessup, learned about what happened, he started calling his players to see if they could help rebuild the bridge on September 5th. About 30 people showed up that day, ready to get to work. The outreach of people was just mind-boggling, Hagen said. The crew worked efficiently, removing and replacing wooden planks at the 60-foot bridge in less than three hours. Jessup estimates it would have taken Hagen a month to do the job on his own. Hagen, who wrote everyone who helped him a thank you card, made a donation to the team and told the Post it was just amazing to see so many people come together, adding, I couldn't be more thankful. So this is just a light little story. I know there's, you know, so much going on in the world, but, you know, something that stuck out to me, there are these little pockets of places like in the Midwest and the South, and I'm sure all over the world, where people live in, you know, houses they, that have come down through generations and they really just kind of maintain the land or the area and they don't choose to move from that. And these little places of people are kind of left out by, you know, local government when it comes to like fixing a city or doing any sort of infrastructure. So this guy was stuck there and his son, his, his grandson's football team just like came through. 
and um, made a way for him to get back out of his house. And I just think that's so great. Um, can't even yeah. imagine if something like that would happen. Um, somebody I know, what could we do as rescue efforts as people to just help one another? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really nice. And it reminds me, I was reading today about the, um, I mean, it's politically fraught and really quite upsetting, but um, how the governor of Florida sent a group of my uh like migrants migrant workers or i i don't yeah i don't remember exactly what their title was but um up to nantucket i'm not nantucket i'm sorry wait is it nantucket no oh my gosh jasmine i'm sorry it is mars i think yeah it's like where they were lied to and were told regardless, they were lied to and told that they were being sent to Boston, but they were actually dropped off in like a really wealthy enclave and the community there really came together um, to support them and offer them resources. And, uh, you know, hopefully um, those efforts keep moving. Like it's not just like a day of like, look at us, we're so nice, but actually they get the resources they need and the help they need. But it's, you know, um, it sucks that that happened, but it's also heartwarming to see the community there like coming together to offer support, um, you know, at least emotionally. <laughs> yeah, for yeah. a group of people that need it. Yeah. Yeah. There is still some human and some human good out there, people. Don't give up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to the end. We did it. Yay. Yeah. Jasmine, we missed you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Objection to the Rule. You can find all of our older episodes on a, on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on Spotify. Please keep listening for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with our final track of the day. This song is called Trouble and is by a group called The New Respects. We'll see you next week. Bye. Trouble don't you find a home by me. Trouble don't you find a home by me. Oh my lord, if you're listening, tell them go ahead and get gone. Trouble don't you find a home by me. Trouble don't you find a home by me. Oh my lord, if you're listening, tell them go ahead and get gone.
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate.